0: As I said before, we have a guest speaker um, today, and I forgot to say this first service, so as always, you guys at second service get the information that I forgot to say. So um, I invited Josh to come and speak on justice. So again, Josh works for Exploit No More, So he's going to be talking about justice. And this whole irresistible gospel campaign uh, it, it is built off of what I heard Tim Keller say in an interview where he said that the even if you're not a Christian, like, you should all want this story to be true because it's so, so good. So that's what this whole campaign is built on and why the gospel story is so irresistible. And in that same interview, Keller mentioned that in New York City, he was a pastor in New York City, he often talked with young people who were passionate about justice, which young people today tend to be very, very passionate about justice. And he said he would always tell them that, Christianity, the gospel, it has more resources to do what they want to do than their secular worldview. And history has proven this to be true through all all of the work that Christians have done to bring justice to the world. Yeah, I love um, what Martin Luther King Jr. said, that the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. That's an act of God's grace in our world. So uh, with that, I want to invite Josh to come up and and preach today. He's got a wonderful message on the justice of God. So would you guys welcome Josh? Well, good morning. How is everyone? It's good
1: to be here this morning. It's always good to be with uh, the Lord's people on the Lord's Day. And it's always super fun to be with the LifeBridge family here in Burlington as well. Uh, as John said, we have a, a super exciting topic this morning. We'll be talking about and considering the topic of justice. Uh, so if you have your Bibles or if you're a note taker or um, if you have a tablet or your phone, we'll sort of be jumping around a bit. And this might feel like a, more of a biblical overview of justice rather than an exegesis of a specific text. Uh, But we will camp out for a while on Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 to 19, if you want to grab that and start turning there. Um, In many ways, justice is a topic that all humans should uh, consider very closely, and certainly Christians. C.S. Lewis said that all human beings have an innate sense and a natural longing for justice. And I think that's true because we... Quarrel with each other, right? We argue and we try to make um, our opinions right. We say things like, "You took my seat," or "You ate my leftovers," or um, "I get a lot of times that you didn't do the to-do list that I left for you." Um, and this is more about just changing someone's behavior. We're trying to make a case why we're right, why we're. In the right and they're in the wrong. Why? Um, and, and comparing and contrasting this dynamic of just versus unjust. And kids seem to even know this as well. I was recently uh, driving my niece to work at her part-time job at the bakery. She was 15 at the time, and um, and I didn't plan properly, so we were running about five minutes late. And and she's super type A, so she was very anxious the whole way that she would be even just a few minutes late to work, and I was trying to console her the whole way and tell her it'll be okay and, um, and, and that, you know, that you won't get in trouble, it's fine, and all of that stuff, easy for me to say, right? Um, and she said something interesting. She said, why should I get in trouble for what you did wrong? <laughs> and, and, and she was right. She had this sense that um, she shouldn't be punished for someone else's crime. And of course, I had explained to her that I'm her elder and her uncle, that, you know, when I succeed, she succeeds. When I fail, she's cursed. But she had this sense, this longing that something was wrong about that. And so we should ask ourselves, why should we consider the topic of justice as Christians? Why should we dive deeper into this topic? And I think there's two primary reasons that I want to pitch to you all this morning. And the first is a simple one. There's just too much injustice in the world for the Christian to ignore it. There's homelessness, there's poverty, there's human trafficking, there's broken families, there's addiction. There's uh, more and more now people obtaining and taking hold of different worldviews that go even further away from the truth of God. And so for the Christian, there's just too much wrong and messed up with the world for us to just ignore it and go about our lives And the other, the primary reason, is that there is just too much overwhelming biblical evidence that justice is near to the heart of God. We see this throughout Scripture. It can't be avoided. Uh, Just to highlight a few, Isaiah chapter 30 says, Therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you, for the Lord is a God of justice. Psalm 10, O oh Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. You will vindicate the orphan and the oppressed. Psalm 82, vindicate the weak and the fatherless. Matthew 12, speaking of Jesus, here is my servant whom I, serve whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations and on and on and on. There's just too much biblical evidence that justice is close to the heart of God. But, but even so, in our culture, um, I think we hear and we um, have all of these versions and definitions of justice coming at us all the time. Maybe we have a group of people that says, uh, for those that need justice in, in our society, that they uh, can do the work themselves. They can pull themselves up and accomplish justice or mercy on their own. Or maybe we have other groups that say justice is purely a communal thing, that that for those that need justice and mercy, they can be pardoned of all their personal responsibility, and it's a responsibility of purely the community or even the state. We see the word justice plastered on billboards and campaigns and we're inundated with all of these versions of justice. And I think to make things more confusing, in Christian circles we have sort of a tension, right? We maybe have churches who um, only only emphasize the proclamation of the gospel, and rightfully so. Maybe they de-emphasize or don't uh, note the demonstration of the gospel through deeds of mercy. And maybe on the other hand, uh, we have churches who improperly place justice at the top shelf of priority and use that as the primary focus. And by doing so, watering down the gospel of grace that we're called to preach. And so this is a tension that we deal with. And there's a lot of tensions in the Christian life, uh, like, you know, how do we balance grace and truth? How do we forgive freely but also speak truth into people's lives? How do we uh, believe that God is sovereign over all things, but in mysterious ways we make our own decisions and deal with the ramifications of those? And so this topic before us is this uh, tension as well, this dynamic between word and deed when the church is called to two things, the ministry of the word and the sacraments and the ministry of deeds. The gospel should be proclaimed and preached and taught and spoken with words, but it should also be demonstrated with deeds of mercy and justice. The book of James um, is basically a commentary on this dynamic. It says in James 1:22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And then he goes on in verse 27 of the same chapter: Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this: to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so I think um, I want to make the argument that the Christian, uh, it's not an option. The Christian has the duty to think through the topic of justice as it relates to the mission of the church. And I want us to do that under three sort of headings this morning if you're a, a note taker. The first is this, that biblical justice is linked to the God of justice, and that's where we'll sort of um, unpack Deuteronomy chapter 10 and uh, start to get a working definition of justice. And then point number two, denying justice, so what are ways we deny justice in our lives? And then lastly, delivering justice, what are ways we deliver justice? So uh, justice defined, justice denied, justice delivered. Does that sound all right? Okay. Okay. Um, so, point number one, uh, biblical justice is linked to the God of justice. Um, again, you can turn, you can look with me, Deuteronomy chapter 10, uh, verses 17 to 19, or you can um, jot it down and read it later, I would encourage you to. Uh, but first, I want us to see that biblical justice flows from the God of justice. That, that is to say that justice in uh, and of itself, in the purest form, cannot be separated from the God of the Bible, uh, Deuteronomy is a fascinating book. It's a, uh, a, a, a national constitution, if you will. It's a sort of a founding document of the new life that Israel is about to uh, embark on. Deuteronomy is, is, is a lot, in a lot of ways, like the whole Bible is about, is about what God does for Israel, not what Israel has done for God. And this is what Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 and 19 says. It says, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. Verse 18, he executes justice for the fatherless and widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Verse 19, therefore love the sojourner, therefore for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. And this is what we see. uh, What we see is something truly amazing. We see the um, all-sufficient, um, all-powerful, God of gods, the, the God who reigns over all other gods, the Lord of lords, the true God of true gods. So what's being established here is that this God is above all other gods and his greatness knows no limits. And, and, then, and then it says, it's, it's making the point that the, uh, on the basis of this greatness, God does not show partiality and he does not take a bribe. And bribes are interesting if you've ever thought about bribes before. I don't know if you have. Uh, One thing, I don't have kids. One thing I've noticed from having nieces and a nephew over the years and um, my sister-in-law has kids as well or has nieces and nephews as well is that kids are generally pretty motivated by money because they don't have any and they want money. And so... I have a dear friend at my church. His name's Luke. He has five kids. Three, the The oldest three are boys, like fifteen, 13, and 10 or so. And um, they're inherently sort of competitive with each other. And Luke is a is a coffee drinker, so he sort of set up a a family system where he can get coffee provided for him every morning. So he trained his oldest boy to use a French press coffee, and it was part of the work agreement that he would provide that every morning he would do that that would be part of his routine and he would get like a pay, a monthly payment it was like i don't know 20 40 bucks something like that so you know it was enough where hey this is some spending money but it was certainly you know you don't want to run that through like the labor laws or anything but the, what started to happen um, amongst the boys is that the other two boys uh, would start to undercut the price they're like i'll do it for 20 i'll do it for 10 I'll do it for a dollar a month. And so we are easily, easily persuaded by money and by influence. And, and the point of this bribe imagery in our passage, is to stress that God's transcendent power is above bribes or partiality or influence. God is above a bribe the way the sun is above candles or fire. And the way beauty is above mirrors. He already owns all of the money in the universe. And so we can trust that this God is just and perfect and not corrupt. And we can look at our culture and and say how many leaders and politicians and uh, people take special interest money and bribes. How many earthly judges do we have to worry about being partial in their judgments? But the God we worship, this God, As Deuteronomy says, the God of gods, the God of the Bible, is above all of that and is so good and so mighty and so just that we can trust his judgments won't be partial, but rather righteous and good and perfect. And then the passage starts to sort of pick up, and the astonishing part comes in verse 18. It says this He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. And loves the sojourner and giving him food and clothing. And so again, on the basis of, basis of God's transcendent power and might in his uh, perfect, impartial, uncorrupt judgments, what does he do? He executes justice for the orphan and the widow, and loves the sojourner and the foreigner by giving him food and clothing. And so since God can't be bribed by the rich, and has no deficiency to remedy through favoritism or influence. He works for those who can't afford bribes and have nothing to attract his partiality, the orphan, the widow, the sojourner, the stranger, and the lowly. And this is the great countercultural truth of the gospel, right? That, That the Lord of lords, this great one, the God who created and now governs the affairs of the universe, is near to the lonely, is near to the orphan, is near to the poor, is near to the sojourner. And this God is is one who executes justice for those who can't do it themselves or those who need it most. And this is what makes uh, the Christian, as, as Pastor John was sort of alluding to in his introduction, this is what makes the Christian story unique to all other world religions. In all other religions, the person... We have to do the work to earn the favor of God. Do the work. You know, in Buddhism, you have to earn your way to enlightenment. In, in Mormonism, you have, to, you have a list of requirements to earn favor within the religion. You have to go to the temple. You have to do the work. But the gospel of grace says that God came down to us and lived a perfect life, died a gruesome death, but rose and ascended victoriously. And this Almighty, powerful God, the Lord of Lords, the God of Gods, who rose Jesus from the dead, created, and now governs the universe, is interested in justice for the vulnerable. And this is an amazing, amazing thing. This is, this is a truth that, that we can't just leave here. We have to do something with it. So look at verse 19. It says, love the sojourner. Therefore, you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. And so this perfect, just God who does justice should motivate us to also do justice. The justice that overflows from the character of God should prompt us to participate it in our own lives and in our own communities. And the instruction here for Israel is, is saying that uh, What's the reason you should love the sojourner? Because you were one. And the Bible is clear about this. The Bible is always, always um, prompting us to remember, to recall, to remember what God did for you, to not forget. One of my favorite passages in all of the the Bible is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter six. And um, if you wanna, you don't have to turn there, but if you wanna jot it down and go to it later. Here, Paul is sort of, uh, he's sort of going through the, uh, the hit list of sins that won't make it to heaven. So it's kind of a, kind of a stark um, passage. It's like, all right, these are the ones that aren't getting in clearly. And so, you know, he says that, uh, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Then he goes on to start to list specific things sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And I think the Corinthians, as we would tend to do, is we, we see those things and we're like, yep, they're not getting in with me. And then he says in verse 11, but such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're always called to remember what God has done for you and not forget. And so what that means for us application-wise, if we, if we operate in Burlington, in our communities, in Milwaukee, in the rest of the world, and, and we look at the homeless, at the poor, at the needy with contempt or even with avoidance or we think we're better than anyone, What the Bible is saying here is when we do that, we're forgetting what God has done for us. This this attitude of superiority or avoidance is in a specific and stark defiance to the heart of God. Because in his grace, through Christ, God has reached down to the lowly, to the poor, to the sojourner, of which we all are apart from his grace. And so we should have this same burden to see others delivered the same way we have been delivered. Does that make sense? So doing justice is so linked to the character of God that um, if, if we sort of survey the Old Testament, there's specific and formal laws that are set up for God's people to care for the poor in order to respond to God's character, so before we move on to our next couple points, we have to make the connection here between our passage here in Deuteronomy and and, and sort of Old Testament theology in general and the New Testament. Uh, for example, if you if you want to write it down, Leviticus 19 is just a it's just a great. I know no one has ever said this about Leviticus, but it's a great chapter to read on a Sunday afternoon. But it says, "You shall not strip your vineyard bare." neither shall you gather your fallen grapes of your vineyard, you shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. This is a specific law, a provision for the poor and the sojourner. And it says after that, I am the Lord your God. It's almost like God is stamping his approval to this. It's like, yes, that, that's caring for the poor, feeding the hungry, that's what I do. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to stamp my name on it. We, we see other things in the Old Testament. We see the year of Jubilee, which is um, a year where all debts are forgiven. Slaves are freed and, and, and can return home. So we see structural provisions in the Old Testament set up by God to have his people do justice to respond to his just character. And now certainly we have to contextualize things. We're not in Ancient times, our modern nations aren't under the Mosaic covenant. Uh, we don't have specific property that's assigned by God. We can engage in commerce freely and those types of things. But we must remember, although there have been some uh, practical changes from the Old Testament to the New Testament to now the age of the church, the character and interests of God have not changed. And so, so how God's people reflect the character of God remains the same. It just looks logistically different, maybe. And so, if we fast forward to Jesus, he doesn't change the Old Testament laws regarding justice. He, in fact, uh, pushes and double da- doubles down the application of these laws further. In Matthew 23, he says Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, which are justice and mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And so Jesus is placing all of the Old Testament law under the headship of the great commandment. And this happens later in the same chapter. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like this. You shall love your... As yourself, on these two commandments depend what? all the law and prophets. And so the Old Testament understanding of justice is summed up in the New Testament understanding of neighbor, and both are explicitly linked to the character of God. So therefore the great commandment and the great commission should not be intention. they should be, uh, in fact, depend on one another. And to put a a bit more of a practical uh, definition on this before we move on, in his book, Generous Justice, um, Tim Keller defines justice this way. Um, Side note, I think my, like, I go to a PCA church, it's a Presbyterian church, I think they'll get a kick out that even non-Presbyterians are are, uh, saying Keller's name in church, (laughs) as he's our, you know, high saint and all that, but... But in his book, uh, Generous Justice, Tim Keller defines justice this way. He says, We do justice when we give all human beings their due as creations of God. Doing justice includes not only writing uh, of wrongs, but generosity and social concern, especially toward the vulnerable. It, this consists of a broad range of activities from simple, fair, and honest dealings with people in daily life, which I think is helpful. To regular rag- radically generous giving of your time and resources to uh, to activities that seek to end particular forms of injustice. and so for the Christian, I think justice means going into uh, the areas of society where the fabric, the the DNA, the essence of Shalom has been broken down. And I think that means a lot of different things for a lot of different people. Maybe it means that uh, your small group is starting to think about these things and how to serve a certain set of people. Maybe it just means that you deal differently with your neighbors. We will all have to reflect and pray about how, what this means for us and how we can participate in the justice that God is doing. But, but when we do that, we should see it as an honor, not a burden to be used redemptively to repair and restore and see some form of small restoration here on earth in, in, in what has been torn apart by sin until one day the God of justice comes and makes all things right. Okay, point number two. That was the, other, the next two points will be shorter, I promise. Point number two, denying justice. What, what, do, we, what do we do to deny justice? To speak a bit more practically here, Um, I want to unpack just a couple ways that we deny justice as Christians. I think one way we do it is we focus on the external versus the internal. This can lead to hypocrisy and legalism, which certainly I'm guilty of. I think we all are. And so the opposite of having a grace-fueled heart... And a motivation, uh, the opposite of having a grace-fueled heart is a motivation to simply appear righteous on the outside by our good deeds and good works. And Jesus, this is a huge theme of his earthly ministry. He was constantly addressing this with scribes and Pharisees and dealing with heart issues. If you if you notice, this is anecdotal, if you notice in Jesus' uh, ministry and conversation in the New Testament, someone will ask him a question and he'll, his response will seem random and out of, like, out of left field, but he, he's always getting back to the heart of the matter. So he's not wasting time on the fringes of, um, of what's not necessary. He's always getting back to the heart of the matter. And we see this again in Matthew 23. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside, they are full of greed and self-indulgence, you blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanliness. So you also appear, also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And we read that and we can say amen to that. It's more uncomfortable when we sort of turn it back on ourselves and reflect on how We have uh, displayed that in our lives. But Jesus is always uniquely interested in the matters of the heart, the matters of motivation. He's interested in cleansing that starts from the inside and comes to the outside rather than the opposite. He's interested in authentic and true justice that's fueled by the grace of God. And Another way we deny justice is we, I think, become... uh, measured in how we fulfill the demands of justice, and I'll explain that a little bit. Meaning I think, I think part, of this, um, part of this work to like, define and understand justice is we have to realize how truly radical the demands of justice are. I, I think we tend to think we can fulfill these in our own strength. I know that I do that. Even, even me, I work in social services, so I think sometimes I have a tendency to be like, all right, it's 5 o'clock, the justice for the day is done, because we did it all today. And we tend to think we can fulfill these in our own strength, but, but when we do that, we deny true justice flourishing. For example, if you turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 in verse 43, or again, if you want to just jot it down and go there later, I told you we would have a lot of references. And this is where Jesus explains what it means to follow the law in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.43 says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. In this term here, you have heard it said, uh, Jesus is, is not referring back to the Levitical law, to the reference of what he's talking about. Uh, you have heard it said, he's actually referencing like the, the, the current time Jewish interpretation of that law. Because if you look back at Leviticus 19.18, which you'll read Leviticus 19 on this Sunday afternoon, which references Matthew 5.43, it says nothing about the second part, which says hating your enemy. All it says is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so here's the question. Why would anyone add to the laws of God or offer a bullet point on how to uh, follow it more closely? Don't Don't we have enough laws to follow in our life and, and, and current, current sort of Jewish tradition has a lot of um, explanation and commentaries on the laws of God so they can follow it more closely. That's sort of a side note to this. But this is sort of what it's getting at. Why would someone add to the law of God? I think it's to make the law of God more attainable. I think the reason, the, the radical command of loving your neighbor as yourself is a lot more um, palpable when you can hate your enemy. Or or, or when we can only love our our wives or our family or those who love us back. It's much more doable. And I think humans, we have the tendency to um, analyze the law of God and sort of get it on a spreadsheet and figure out how we can obey it perfectly. But when we do that, we are going against the heart of the matter, which is actually an injustice against the character of God. And so the practical result of this, though, I think is... A lot of times when we do this, I know I'm sort of guilty of this too, is um, we become generous with a few select people in our lives who, who sort of uh, fit the bill of what we deem, um, of who we deem can measure up to who we involve in our lives and who we want to associate with. And we feel justified doing so because uh, we've sort of we've fed a meal to them. We've done this. We've done that. But the question for us and for our hearts is how often do we engage in mercy and justice in a one-way manner where where we're not expecting anything back in return or even if it's to someone who doesn't fit the bill or is a little rough around the edges and all of those things as well. Uh, My pastor growing up, this was sort of a, a, a highlight, a hallmark of his counseling to people. If someone was struggling with meaning or feeling like they belong he would say well go help someone and 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 his point was when you engage in one way mercy or one way giving you are actually getting very close to the heart of god because that's what he does to us and we weren't given the laws of god to become measured and add to it, to figure out how we can sort of behaviorally obey it, we were given the law of God to feel the overwhelming holiness of God, the scary reality of our sin, and to point us to a Savior who fulfilled the laws in Christ. And so we deny justice when we think in our own strength we can fulfill this command. But it's only when we understand how in our sin we have committed Injustice against the holiness of God and how in Christ he has radically fulfilled God's wrath through his perfect sacrifice. It is when we have this proper posture that we can offer anyone justice and mercy in our communities. Point number three, our last point, uh, delivering justice. How do we deliver justice? Um, Because we live in a, a fallen, World, a post-Genesis 3 world, we, we, we do see justice play out here on earth. Uh, justice is fulfilled here by uh, people getting uh, either a form of punishment or protection. We have a penal uh, justice system that punishes wrongdoers and protects the vulnerable. And certainly God oversees that and governs that in mysterious ways that we may not even know about. But going further... The the gospel says that the sinner receives mercy and Jesus received the penal justice on our behalf in order to give us his righteousness. And and this is true justice delivered. And when that's the case, this has to prompt us to something, and I think it's this, to be grace-fueled in all that we do. We should be motivated to partake um, in true justice with a truly changed heart and a truly changed spirit. And so we can have conversations, we can engage in these things um, with the world around us from a place of humility, from a place that we know that God has delivered us and we seek that for other people. First John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and what? Just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all righteousness. It doesn't say he is faithful and merciful or faithful and gracious or faithful and kind, which he certainly is. It says he is just to forgive our sins. So that means when we confess our sins to God, we are pleading the justification that comes through Christ. It would be unjust for God to demand a second payment when there has been a perfect one paid. And so that can give us a confidence to confess sin freely, to engage in mercy freely, and to see where God is working in our lives and participate. And so the only way for us to be gracious to people is realize that we have experienced grace. And I think this should motivate us, as we wrap up here, it should motivate us to something practical, which I mentioned is, is, I think, radical, one-way giving in our lives. Because Jesus, uh, the, the ultimate strong and rich one, became weak and poor for us so that we might become strong and rich in him. And what this does for the Christian, it gives us a sort of capital, a reserve account that we can now afford to give uh, in a one-way direction to the world, to give mercy to the world, to do justice to the world, even if it's sometimes one-sided. And so, dear friends, I urge us to let us use this capital, let us use this truth to fulfill the Great Commission and the Great Commandment to the world around us, to Burlington, to our communities, until God one day returns and makes all things right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the essence of justice, Lord. You say what is right and wrong. We thank you that you are working here in Burlington, Lord, and in Wisconsin, in our country, and around the world, Lord. We pray that um, as we leave this place, as we respond to you in singing and, and in deeds throughout the week, that we do so for your glory only. In your precious name, amen.